whatever that is. So uh, I don't sound too much like a monster, but uh, kids, just in case you weren't scared, be scared now. <laughs> hey, we do me a favor and stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 28, uh, reading verses 16 through 20. This is a likely very familiar passage for each of you. Uh, this is what it says. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, you can have a seat now. So we've been working through this series um, that we've just titled Vision, and it's a visionary component of where we're going in the next year, and really three um, years. And so I'm really excited about where we are and what we're talking about. And uh, we've been talking in particular about the idea of apprenticeship or apprenticing to Jesus. Did you know that there are actually over 1,100 officially recognized apprentice programs in the United States? That's crazy. Like when I asked my wife, and I would have thought this too, I was like, hey, how many do you think there are? 50, 60, right? Like officially recognized programs, over 100. Over 1,100, 1,100. And that's according to Apprenticeship USA, which is a branch of the Department of Labor. Now, the average amount of time that an apprentice spends in an apprenticeship program is 5,525.65 hours. I did the math, I averaged it out for you. And that ranges from 2,000 being the, the least amount of hours that someone will put in in one of these apprenticeship programs, all the way up to 12,500 hours. So if you average that out, the 5,525 5, hours, you divide it by eight hours, which of course we know is the uh, common work day in a trade or profession, you get 690. So that means that the average person spends 690 full working days apprenticing in their specific field. That's a lot. You average that out, given that we have a normal work week of five days, and that's 2.6 years, 2.6 years. Now that math, that math assumes that you are going to work a full eight hours every day on the very training that you are after. And so of course we know that that's not true. You take lunch breaks and restroom breaks. Um, so let's go ahead and round it up to three years. Three years. The average person who takes an apprenticeship program spends training simply to be qualified in their craft. And then all of the apprenticeship programs, they use a very common, typical model to train their students. Phase one is I do, you watch, meaning I'm the teacher. The teacher does, the student watches, right? The second one is the teacher does or I do and you help. Phase three, you do, I help, and phase four, you do, and I watch. Slowly moving the student from learning all the way to actually performing the task. Now, over the past three weeks, we've been talking about this vision we have for Foundation Church, which is to become fully trained, mature disciples of Jesus. Now, discipleship, as 
you know if you've been around the church, is describing this process that is much like an apprentice. And in the time of Jesus, the primary mode of training was for a student to disciple under a teacher and learn everything they knew. That was the way people learned. It was by discipling. So that eventually, they could go and replicate and do what their teacher did. So Jesus' disciples, specifically the 12 that we know best, were spending virtually every day with Jesus to learn to be like Jesus and to do what Jesus did. Now, I find it very interesting that our model of formal apprenticeship is virtually identical in length and scope to what Jesus did with his disciples. Jesus spent around three years in that dedicated, intense ministry that we read about in the Gospels. And he spent all of them with his disciples. The only difference is they didn't have work days. They didn't have days where they would just take the day off and not be with Jesus. They were with Jesus all of the time. They took it so seriously because they went with him wherever he went and they did whatever he did. They ate whatever he ate. They slept wherever he slept. And that's what it was to be a disciple of Jesus. Based on his command in Matthew 28 that we just read, Jesus trained them. The three years that he spent with them, Jesus trained them for a specific purpose. He trained them to go and teach other disciples everything that he had taught them to do, everything that he had taught them to know, everything that he had taught them to be. He said, now go and do the same thing now, becoming like me and doing what I did. Now, of course, we're learning about what it means to be an apprentice under Jesus. That's what this series has been about. And we're doing so in the context of our unique lives. Um, how do we, this is the question, how do we, the people of Foundation Church, follow the common call to apprentice under Jesus while at the same time working in our careers, going to school, parenting our children, living in our own neighborhoods, visiting our favorite coffee shops, etc. We have unique lives, don't we? Now it would be one thing if we could all kind of leave our current lives and physically follow Jesus from town to town to town, watch his every move, listen to his stories, experience his miracles in person, but that just is not our journey. It was the experience of the disciples, but it's not ours. So how do we apprentice under Jesus? Well, that's a great question. Two weeks ago, we began to roll out what we are calling a rule of life. And for this very purpose of helping Foundation Church move down the pathway of apprenticing under Jesus, at the core, a rule of life is simple. It's a schedule of habits and practices that you use to guide your life. And of course, building on that design, the follower of Jesus has a rule of life that's designed to help them apprentice specifically under Jesus. So here is a helpful definition of a rule of life, okay? A rule of life is a schedule, a set of practices, and relational rhythms that help us create space in our busy world to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. Essentially, to live life to the full in his kingdom and in alignment with our deepest passions and priorities. So, 
essentially a rule of life is a system that supports your intentional efforts to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, to do what Jesus did. Now, I've been using this analogy of a trellis. I didn't bring it this week. I brought it the first two weeks. I figured you'd get the picture. It's also the image that we've been using on the slides. But a trellis is essentially this. It's a support mechanism to help plants and vines and small trees grow. Basically, it just plants itself in the ground. And then vines will crawl up it, or small plants will crawl up it. Not to get blown over by the wind or trampled on by wildlife. The trellis is a support system. That's all that it is, it's a support system. It's not the growth mechanism itself. It simply supports the mechanism from which the plants can grow. Well, that's true too for those of us who are apprenticing under Jesus. The rule of life is the support mechanism. It helps us organize our lives in a way that allows us to be with Jesus, be like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. Now, our team has developed 10 rules they're really statements. We've rolled out six of them already to you, and I'm gonna give you the last four today. But you'll notice what these statements are. They are, um, a, they're three things. They start by describing the type of community that we wanna be, then it moves into the type of um, cultural practice that this community will stand against, and then it will help us, it will show us the practice that helps us move in the direction that we wanna go. So, so far, like I said, we rolled out six, and I'm gonna read them to you again, and then I'll roll out the last four to you. So, we wanna be a community of rest in a culture of hurry and exhaustion through the practice of Sabbath. Many of you were here with us in the fall and practiced Sabbath with us. It's an effort to get some rest into our souls, to be with Jesus. Number two, we want to be a community of connection with God in a culture of distraction and escapism through the practice of prayer. Number three, we want to be a community of courageous fidelity and orthodoxy in a culture of ideological compromise through the practice of scripture. Number four, a community of peace and quiet in a culture of anxiety and noise through the practice of solitude. Number five, a community of holiness in a culture of indulgence and immorality through the practice of fasting. That's the practice we're going through right now in our home groups, and it has been spectacular. Number six, a community of love and deep work in a culture of individualism and superficiality through the practice of communion. So those are the six that we've given you so far, and I'm going to give you the last four now. Number seven. We want to be a community of contentment and a culture of consumerism through the practice of generosity. Number eight, we want to be a community of justice, mercy, and reconciliation in a culture of self-interest and division through the practice of service. Number nine, we want to be a community of dignity and a culture of accusation and shame through the practice of vulnerability. And number 10, we want to be a community of hospitality and a culture of hostility through the practice of witness. Now, all 10 of these things Jesus demonstrates for us in the Gospels. We're simply doing what Jesus modeled for us to do. And there's other practices that Jesus does, but we picked 10 that if we could really hone in on these practices and make them part of our life, people would move closer to being like Jesus and doing what Jesus did. So what I want to do now is I want to spend the 
remainder of our time just covering why these 10 matter, where we see Jesus doing them in scripture and how they play themselves out. So they're gonna be little snapshots, otherwise we'd be here all day. You don't wanna be here all day. And I definitely can't be here all day, okay? <laughs> so here we go. Now Sabbath is the practice of giving your mind, your body and your soul 24 hours of rest to refuel and to worship Jesus. Sabbath is a practice that is established originally in the Ten Commandments. And then in the New Testament, Jesus actually doubles down on it and the purpose of Sabbath. When he talks about this in Mark 2, I'm going to read verse 27 only, but the story is this. The religious leaders, the Pharisees of the day, see Jesus' disciples walking through the field, and they pick some grain to eat because they were hungry. Now, if you're hungry, what would you do? You would find a snack, and that's what they were doing, but that was considered work. And so they questioned Jesus, but this is Jesus' response. He said, then he said to him, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Therefore, what we see Jesus saying here is Sabbath is meant to be a regular rhythm to serve us as we engage it so that we can be more restful and more intentional about refueling and connecting with Jesus. So that's Sabbath. Number two, prayer. Functionally, this is all prayer is. Prayer is communicating with God. But we know that it's so much more than that, right? Prayer is a relational thing with God. It's a worshipful thing with God, and it's a formational thing with God. And so I picked out a few scriptures that I wanted to read to you about the nature and function of prayer. I'm going to go through them pretty quickly, but they will be on the screen. First of all, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 says this. Rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We are to pray continually. Philippians 4, 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. What we see there is prayer is like a counter to anxiety. When you are anxious, pray. <clears throat> Colossians 4, verse 2 says, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. We are to be devoted to prayer. James 5, 16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Because the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Did you catch that? It's powerful and effective. And then Psalm 145, verse 18 says this, The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Prayer is the reminder that the Lord is near. Now, a few months back, we did a series on prayer. And in that series, we covered kind of the four primary functions of prayer that we see Jesus modeling in the Sermon on the Mount. He starts with adoration. Prayer is the space where we can bring worship to God. He models confession. Prayer is the space where we recognize our need for God and His mercy and His grace. We see Him model intercession. Prayer is the space where we lift up the needs of those that we know and love, maybe who cannot lift up their own needs. And then four, petition. Prayer is the space where we talk to God 
and we tell him what we want and what we need. Even if we don't get it, we talk to him about it. So there is so much more we could learn about prayer from scripture, but here's the big idea and why it's an essential practice. Prayer is essential because it is powerful and nothing else can substitute for prayer. You just can't do anything else like prayer that will have the power of prayer. So we must be a people of prayer. Okay, number three, scripture. In Matthew's, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter five through seven, we read this account. We read the Sermon on the Mount, which is the greatest sermon ever preached. In that sermon, Jesus teaches on essential elements of faith. And he says this in Matthew chapter seven, verse 24. This is gonna be familiar to you as well, but you're gonna hear it a lot. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So how do we practice hearing the words of Jesus? Through scripture, that's how we do it. Like I said, we're not walking with Jesus physically anymore, so what we do, we engage scripture, and that's how we know about Jesus. That's how we know what he said. Now listen to the various ways the Bible talks about the impact of scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. There's a lot in there, and it's super good. Psalm 19, 7 through 11 says this, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making a wise simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. <laughs> and then Romans 15, 4 says this, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in scripture, in scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. In scripture, we find hope. It's powerful. So reading and applying scripture to our lives is indeed an essential practice of apprenticing to Jesus. Okay, how about solitude? Now this one might sound odd to some people. To some, it might actually sound like a gift from heaven, depending on your personality, but here's the thing. Many people are familiar with this passage that we see in Matthew chapter 14 where Jesus walks on water, but you probably don't remember how this passage starts. So let me read it to you. I'm just gonna read Matthew 14, 22 through 23. It says, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side where he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on the mountainside by himself to prayer. Later that night, he was there alone. Here's another example of Jesus going to a solitary place. Mark chapter one, verses 35 through 36 says this, very early the next morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up 
and left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. So we see that Jesus got up and he left. And we know that he was alone because everybody was looking for him. So when it came time to pray in Jesus' life, he withdrew to a place of solitude. And in Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching about prayer. He says this in verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. So it's clear that in moments where Jesus knew he needed to pray, he needed to get away, he found places of solitude, especially in moments of prayer. Now there's two things to remember, okay? Not all prayer happens in solitude. We also pray as a community and as a church, right? You get together with your home groups. Hopefully you're praying with each other. We obviously pray here, but we also are to pray in solitude. And this is very important to know and remember, solitude and isolation are not the same thing, right? They're not the same thing. Solitude is intentionally removing yourself from stimulation so that you can focus on the thing you need to focus on. Hopefully it's prayer, but isolation, that's being drawn out of the community of believers that God has put you in. No one can follow Jesus in isolation. They're not the same thing. You are to find solitude at times to pray. You are never to be isolated from the people of God, okay? So when we fight solitude, it is by design and it's for the intention of praying. Okay, fasting, this is the practice we're on now. It's the practice of eventually, if you work your way up to it, abstaining from food for 24 hours as a form of worship. Now, if you're participating in our home groups that you heard this in the content this last week, in fact, Matthew 16, I'm sorry, 616, the first three words of that verse say this. When you fast, this is Jesus saying, when you fast, what does that mean? He's assuming that you are going to fast. It's not if you fast, it's when you fast, right? Jesus was assuming that people were going to fast. And fasting was also the primary way that Jesus often prepared himself for the biggest moments, for the biggest tests. If you remember back in our series on prayer, we talked in Matthew chapter four, Jesus gets led into the wilderness to be tempted, but he does so right after he fasts and prays for 40 days. So right before he was about to be tested, one of the biggest moments of his earthly life, he started with prayer and fasting. So fasting is a, an assumed practice for the apprentice of Jesus. And when it's paired with prayer, it becomes a very powerful practice of spiritual formation. Okay, so the next one is community, right? We talked about we wanna be a community of community. I know that's kind of silly, but you get it, right? Community has definitely been a Christian buzzword for quite some time now. So let me clarify specifically what we think about when we think about community. And I wanna read this vision, um, this 
picture rather of um, community as it was happening in the early church, okay? It's Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, and this is what it says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. So we see here in the book of Acts, we have this historical account of community in scripture. Now, most of the things in the book of Acts are descriptive because it's a history book, right? So we recognize that. It's not necessarily prescriptive. It's not that this particular image of community is the one that we're after, but we believe that there are a number of other passages in scripture that reinforce this type of behavior. And we also believe that this is not an account of some bygone time or an extinct expression of community. We believe that this level of connection and care is meant for our communities today. But there are some giant barriers that we have to overcome. One of them in particular is this kind of selfish root that we call individualism, right? Like we hear this a lot, don't get me wrong, you're unique and there's things that are unique to you and I love that about each one of you that I've been able to learn about how your life goes and what you're good at and how God's gifted you. There's uniqueness to you. But we are called to be in community. Just like I said with the isolation, you cannot follow Jesus alone. As you apprentice under Jesus, you are woven into this deep, long history of the church community, past, present, and future. We are wired for community. And community does two really interesting things that I think are important for us to know. First of all, it reveals the real you. I talked about this a little bit last week. But when you're in like real authentic community, as we saw in Acts chapter 2, where, where you're um, giving of yourself for the benefit of the whole, where you're sharing meals and taking care of each other's needs and gathering around scripture and prayer, when you're doing that type of community, you get to really know somebody. And it squeezes the good and the bad and the ugly out of us. Only for you to be known by those who are going to love you and who you are going to love. But it also brings a support network through which the love and care that you need as a human, you receive that from the community that's around you. So community is an essential practice of the apprentice to Jesus. The next one, generosity. God calls us to practice generosity with our entire life because generosity is indeed the counterweight. It's the battleground with the place where we fight our selfishness. 
Now, one very specific way that we are called to be generous is with our money. Jesus warns us in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, says this, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. See, if we're not careful, we can be mastered by money. But it says we cannot serve both God and money. So things like the tithe and free will offerings, these are useful and meaningful ways with which God helps us practice generosity. There are lots of other ways as well. But every time we engage this practice, it's like a repetition of a fine skill, right? Or like working out. The more you do it, the stronger you become in theory. And so we're called to practice generosity. And as we do, it roots out the selfishness that is in our soul. Okay, next one is service. Now, if we're going to be like Jesus, we have to learn to serve others. In Mark chapter 9, verse 35, this is what it says. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Anyone who wants to be first has to be the last and the servant of all. That flies in the face of just about every narrative you hear in popular culture, right? So Jesus is teaching his disciples, he's saying, if you want to be first in the kingdom of heaven, you need to serve people. You need to act like you're the last. But they don't just hear Jesus say it, they actually see Jesus model it. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 36, it says, Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then in John chapter 13, verses 12 through 17, we see this image of Jesus serving his disciples, taking on the mode of servant. It said when he had finished washing their feet, he put his clothes on and returned to his place. He says, do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am now, that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. You also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So we serve because Jesus served. And it's part of being like him and doing what he did. The next one is vulnerability. In a culture where image is king, our persona, that thing that we kind of put out into the social media universe, if you will, it's like this candy shell around a really hollow void, right? Masking the reality of our weaknesses, only to become more weak through being partially known rather than being fully known. So instead of that, we embrace 
the reality that we need God to be our strength. We combat a culture of shame by setting aside the veneer of fake perfection. Now, vulnerability is defined as this, the state of being susceptible to attack. And this is true, being vulnerable is definitely leaving you open to some attack, okay? We're not denying that. But being honest with ourselves and with others about what we need and how imperfect we are, it's from that point from which we can be invited into healing and start working toward the better version of ourselves, the version that God has in mind. And the one person who's definitely not going to attack you for being vulnerable is Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take upon, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. When our souls need rest, we turn to Jesus. When we are tired and weary and burdened by the grind of trying to look better than we are, of trying to do more than we can, we turn to Jesus and he offers us rest. And then we're honest with ourselves and we're honest with others. And we're honest with God, who by the way, already knows the situation. then we become vulnerable in a way to which we can move away from a life of shame and into a life of freedom. <clears throat> That's why we practice vulnerability. It's a big deal, it's an essential practice. The final one is this witness. Now this one is last on the list of purpose. It's sort of like the final stage of apprenticing under a rabbi what they would do is they would train as many years as they needed to eventually go, and then they would be commissioned, go now and be a rabbi yourself and make your own disciples. Training as an apprentice under Jesus means that you will eventually go and make your own apprentices under Jesus. That's what witness is. You teach them to be with Jesus, to be like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. That's witness in a nutshell. And you can't skip the training. The reason why witness is at the end is because the other things are leading up towards Jesus. Now, does that mean that there's some finish line you get to before you witness to other people? Of course not. It's a process. It's a journey. It's lifelong but there's helpful things to know and do as you work your way towards helping other people find Jesus, be like Jesus, know Jesus, do what Jesus did. Every single person who follows Jesus is called to go and make disciples. And I personally, I believe most of you do too, if not all of you, I believe all of you rather, um, I'm just gonna go ahead and go out and say, you also want to help other people know Jesus. I'm just gonna assume that, okay? 
So let me tell you where to start. We start with being with Jesus, right? We go all the way back to a few weeks ago when we talked about scripture and prayer and Sabbath and solitude and how these things help us be with Jesus. And then as time goes on, eventually, being with Jesus enough allows you to start to become like Jesus. Sanctification or spiritual formation, whatever form or word you want to use, you become like Jesus so that eventually you will become equipped to do what Jesus did, and that was make disciples or apprentices of Jesus. Okay, so those were the 10. And I imagine you probably were like trying to scramble to write those down. Or you're not gonna get, it's okay. We have a bookmark we're gonna give you next week, okay? We're gonna bring them, everybody will have them, it'll be on the website. You don't have to have these things memorized. Rather, they're like the trellis that we are going to use as we journey towards being with Jesus, like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. So don't worry about that, we'll get you that information. But here is the big idea. These statements are like that trellis. They're this rule of life that Foundation Church is going to use to help people apprentice underneath Jesus, to learn his ways. And it's essential that we learn to practice the way of Jesus, to hear his teachings, like he said, put them into practice so we can be like the wise person who's built their life on the rock. And it doesn't happen overnight. It's a deep work, this deep transforming work of becoming like Jesus in community and it happens over a long period of time. So don't give up when you get frustrated. Don't get discouraged when it's not going perfectly because it's a deep work in community over a long period of time. It cannot be rushed. But instead, we consciously and consistently move towards Jesus. Now I'm gonna have the band come back up in just a moment. We're gonna pray and receive communion. But I wanna remind you of a verse in John chapter 10, where Jesus is talking and he warns his disciples, his audience. He says two things. He says, first of all, there's an enemy that's real. And the purpose of the enemy is to steal, kill, and destroy. That's just the reality for every single person. But Jesus came so that we may have life and have it to the full. And that is the thing that we're after. Apprenticing under Jesus, to be more like him, to be with him, is moving intentionally towards that full life. Not just as something we look forward to in our salvation with the creator after we are reunited with him in heaven, but right now, your life today, you could move towards the fullness. This full life that's not thin and momentary, much like the other versions of life. It's this full life that the creator God of the universe defines. It's this full life that Jesus preaches about and teaches about in scripture. And it's this full life that we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's the full life we're after. And so our hope is that you will join us in this journey over the next year and over the next three years of learning to apprentice under Jesus to be fully mature, highly functioning followers of Jesus.
And I'm thrilled and excited by the opportunity to do this with each of you. And for those who are watching online who couldn't be here because they were sick or gone, we're thrilled to do it with you as well. It's gonna be awesome. It's gonna be truly awesome. Okay, so we wanna close our time today with a song. Before we do that, we're gonna receive communion together. Today we have these cups in front of us. We thought it would be a little easier with the kiddos in here. And communion is, at its most basic function, the tangible reminder of God's grace and mercy in our lives. Specifically, the tangible nature of it is so important, right? In our tradition, it's, it's just juice and a cracker, but it's, it's this beautiful thing that we can taste, touch, and see that helps us to be reminded that Jesus paid the bill on the cross for our sins, paid for our transgressions so that we can indeed move into that full life. That's why we celebrate it as often as we can because we want to be able to remember that, to be reminded of that as frequently as I can, as you can, as we can. So in just a moment, I'm gonna pray. And after I pray, you can receive the elements and then you can join us for our last songs. Father God, we thank you for this tangible reminder of your goodness, of your grace, of your mercy. God, as we receive these elements, as we eat the cracker and drink the juice, may we celebrate in our soul and with our song this reminder that you've given us, that you've told us to practice as often as we can, God. We just want to be faithful to that. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So go ahead and receive the communion elements and stand and sing.